0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Shining Mind podcast. I'm Dr. Selena Bartlett and I'm a neuroscientist and today I am here with Millie Thomas. And welcome
1: Millie, thank you for coming and please
0: introduce yourself.
1: Thank you so much for having me, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So yeah, as you said, my name's Millie and I am an eating disorder recovery coach and an NLP practitioner with NDED. So NDED is a Sunshine Coast based eating disorders charity.
0: Yeah, so, um, and I don't know if everyone's noticed, but Millie has an accent too.
1: (laughs) Yes I do, I'm originally from Auckland, New Zealand, so when I recovered I decided that one of the things I wanted to do was move to my happy place, and the Sunshine Coast had always been my happy place. How was so. that, Pardon? How's how did Sunshine Coast become your happy place? So we spent a lot of time holidaying in Noosa, um, oh, did and you? yeah, yeah. So we did. How and did that happen? Mum just decided that we wanted. To, we'd always sort of um, spent some time in Burley Heads. And then we decided to give Noosa a go and we both really, really loved it. And so it was always a place where I felt um, during my eating disorder most at peace and I um, was able to to reconnect a little bit with myself and so I was always a lot more at peace here than I ever was when I was at home and I think also the sunshine and the warmth helps a lot it
0: does doesn't it? and the beach too is so beautiful
1: absolutely and for me the ocean is is one of the greatest healers you know I would often stand out on that sand look out to the horizon line and it would remind me of just how Really, in the big scheme of things, my problems were very infinitesimal. Um, And just nature and the whales and collecting shells, that's something that I will lose myself in just collecting shells and looking at the shapes and thinking about how the shells were made and just really letting your mind be at one with nature.
0: So, you have quite an amazing story too, don't you? Like, you're now working for End Ed, which is End Eating Disorders. That's just teamed up with the Butterfly Foundation to create this first residential farm stay. Yes, absolutely. for eating disorders, dedicated to eating disorders in Australia. Yes. Um, but with that, the federal government has got behind too, and somehow you're the kind of the ambassador, really.
1: Yeah, I feel really, really privileged to be in in that position.
0: Yeah, and that happened like caught it very organically didn't it
1: you somehow it did
0: what's that story again how did you yeah become absol- involved in that absolutely whole, like with
1: Mark and, Gay and absolutely well when I got well I decided that I as I said I wanted to move to a happy place and, and so did you get well in Auckland um no no I didn't so well do you want to do you want me to, to sort of Talk a little bit about my journey, maybe, and then yeah. kind of how it maybe how it evolved a good into idea that. that. Okay, yeah. okay. Makes so more sense probably. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I first was diagnosed with anorexia when I was twelve years old. So I had started at an all girls private school, and up until then I had had no qualms about my body. I had a very very loving um, family life. We were all very active. We ate well, um, and there was certainly no restriction or anything like that. Um, when I started at, at the new school. I felt a sense of needing to fit in Um, and for me my automatic Thinking around that was that well, if I lose a bit, a little bit of weight, that'll fit in more. I don't know what exactly. Think, yeah. yeah, I don't know exactly where that that seed was planted. I think I did feel um, I was a bit taller than a lot of the other girls, and so therefore my build was different. And there were a lot of them that were quite petite. Um and we're all di- and you know at that age you're all in such different stages of growth, and so for me. Um, it was just something that I felt. Oh well, if I just do some healthy eating, maybe you know, maybe I'll feel um, a bit better about myself. And so, for me, that then you know morphed into um, an eating disorder. And so, I also did have 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 a friendship that was particularly. Um, toxic so to speak and, and at twelve I really was a bit naive to that and really didn't um, pick up on it. So by the beginning of year eight, so uh, that this was all in year seven. In the beginning of year eight I was taken out of school. Um wow. and so my, how
0: fast did what was the trajectory? I would time? say
1: that it would have been around, say, you know, May May in my year seven year that I began to really, you know, go into the healthy eating and exercise more. So when you
0: say healthy eating, can you describe that a little bit? Because there's a reason I'm asking that. Is, you Absolutely. Know, so for marriage.
1: me, it was around, I wanted to make my own lunchbox. I don't actually remember back then what I was putting in that lunchbox, but obviously it was foods like that I deemed or... healthy. Yeah. Like to be honest, I actually don't. I don't remember um, but I just remember that it was what I had felt were healthy light options um, and then I was also up in my exercise and that very quickly turned just to me so young. yeah I was I was really young and that then very quickly turned into me lying about my food intake and then you know hiding my dinner and saying that I'd eaten at soccer practice and things like that so it became very manipulative very quickly um and so I was is this because partly I don't know if you can recall but
0: did you start to feel like you were starting to fit in
1: as you I, lost a
0: little bit of weight or, I you, or you just started enjoy th- the feeling of I having the control? I
1: think it's more enjoying the feeling of having the control. I also think that, you know, for me, we always talk about the fact that genes load, with eating disorders, genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So someone is genetically predisposed to having an eating disorder and then they have the personality traits um, like perfectionism, OCD, high achiever, type A, which I ticked the box for all of those. And then you're put in an environment where, you know, it is high stakes, there is, you know, high academic um, achievement is prized. And then all the goals were, you know, showing off their bodies and, and talking about food and, and things like that. So it was that environment that then triggered it off for me. Um, and so I think... But not in the other school. No, 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 not in the other school, and I don't know whether that's to do with the element of there were also you know males there as well. Whether it was just that age, I'm not too sure. But I, but what I do know is that you're definitely going through big hormonal changes at
0: twelve to fourteen.
1: Absolutely, and you know, once someone who is predisposed drops below that, goes into energy deficit, then then they're primed for that eating disorder to kick in. And so for me, that that is what happened um, it's and so fast. It is. It's really, really fast. Um, and that's you know something to be really mindful of, obviously too in recovery is that it's really, really hard for someone just to ride that very, very, very fine line of just being okay BMI ways, or just being okay in terms of medical stability. because then if you just dip a little bit below, say you get sick, say you get the flu, then that eating disorder comes back with a vengeance. Um, And so that's why I always encourage people to really not focus on goal weights or Just reaching a line. It's about actually allowing your body to find its happy place And you don't know where that's going to be until you allow yourself to eat freely and just exercise for pleasure and you just accept where your body naturally needs to sit and it is an incredibly difficult process um, But it is one that's perfectly possible. So so back to I basically was taken out of school in year eight. Um, my mum, I took time off work to to, to feed me, to re nourish me, and so we spent we spent time doing that, and so that was the course of treatment, which unfortunately is still what people do believe is is the right way, you know, forward is to do that, and we don't really need to worry about too much about the underlying issues, just if we re nourish them and then been medically stable and reach certain BMI and they'll be fine. And what that doesn't address is those underlying issues, is those really, really core deep-seated beliefs that are literally that bedrock of that eating disorder. And so for me, I went back to school in year nine and everyone thought, well, Millie's better now. And, you know, from year nine to year 13, so in New Zealand year 13 is the last year of school, um, I was existing. I wasn't living because I wasn't truly fully there. Um, I didn't, you know, have the usual rites of passage as a teenager. I didn't get drunk. I didn't go to parties. I mean, sometimes I went to parties, but it was few and far between because of my concerns around being made to eat or, you know, in social interaction and all of that.
0: So were 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 you under BMI
1: um or I was definitely place. riding that line. You know I was really really riding that so line. You weren't having to be hospitalized or no. anything, but you were definitely controlling your food. I was definitely controlling. I would only, you know, you have safe foods, that kind of thing, definitely What's controlling a safe my food exercise. To the audience? So a safe food is a food that you feel comfortable eating because you know what it does the effects that it would have on your body. In you, terms, do you, can you explain it yeah, a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think.
0: Don't sure.
1: So for someone with an eating disorder, When they look at food, it's almost in their head that they can visualize that it's suddenly going to make them gain weight or make them add weight in a certain area or they, you know, I mean, it's absolutely individual for everyone what their experience is, but for some people it might be they just see numbers, Um, but it is always... Do you mean like... um... You know exactly the number of calories in something when you look at it. Is that what you
0: mean by numbers? Yeah, absolutely. So you'll, look at, you'll look at a piece of bread and say, well, that's going to be 100 calories, for example.
1: Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot. I mean, again, that's different for, for everybody, yeah, but I think but that... I'm just curious to know when you say they know the numbers. Numbers, yeah, yeah absolutely. Numbers in terms of that. there's a lot of
0: people that don't understand.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So numbers in terms of, um, you know, calories or kilojoules and that can often be incredibly, incredibly overwhelming um, and that need to calculate everything, that need to have everything absolutely in control. Um, And so when you're talking about safe foods, then often there's a calculation that has gone on behind that in terms of, well, you can have that because that, you know, again, it's for everyone, so I can't say, but you might have gone, right, well, that that works.
0: Just talk about your safe foods.
1: Yeah, look, I probably won't. I probably won't talk about specific safe foods because yeah. that could be really triggering for, for people. Okay. But in terms of, you know, I would have probably figured out that that was an okay thing to eat because I knew that I didn't gain weight on that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, so therefore I was okay with eating that because I knew I would stay the same. It was all about staying the same. I didn't want to be different like I needed to be. So again, it all comes down to that control um Are you and,
0: weighing yourself every
1: day too? um we never actually had scales at home um uh, uh, up until a point there probably was a point actually um later on um probably year 12 year 13 where I did get scales and I would constantly weigh myself um but that kind of ebbed and flowed um in terms of I was already being weighed I think twice a week by my GP so really I didn't sometimes I didn't feel the need to do it yeah. um in between then but There were times where it did become quite obsessive. Would you say that this occupied
0: during this phase of your life, like all your thinking, or
1: absolutely, absolutely? I do find it quite incredible though, because I was able to To get school (laughs) absolutely get you know incredible results at school, win scholarships, Mm -hmm. top the business Mm -hmm. school at university. But I was all the while completely consumed with my eating disorder. And I think something that for me academia does is definitely um, allows you to not really focus on the fact that your life outside of, say, academia really isn't a life and you know there are a lot of things that are lacking but if you're intensely focused and you get rewarded for all of that by absolutely the way. <laughs> and also there's that drive when there's an eating disorder at play that it's never good enough so it was never good enough that i got the scholarship to university it was never good enough that i topped the business school it was never good enough that i scored the job that i wanted there was always something more i never stopped to celebrate and reflect on how hard i'd worked to get to where i was get to where i had got because i was always Well, eating disorder was always making me look at the next thing but you didn't achieve this and this person achieved that and that's another thing as a comparison games that go on I mean that is incredible that was something when I did get well that I really had to release and work on was not comparing myself to other people because there was this intense need to compete
0: so that could if we go back to the beginning where it started that makes me think that fitting in is the same idea absolutely you want to fit in better than other people are fitting in like it's more like a and you're looking at strategies to make that happen which is using your intelligence in that direction
1: absolutely and it was an incredibly competitive environment not only academically um sporting drama all of those things it was also a very socially competitive environment it was an incredible education it was The best school in New Zealand. Um, And I thank my parents implicitly for sending me there um, for the education and the experiences that it gave me, which were world-class. But socially, it was incredibly, incredibly toxic. And I think because I already placed enough pressure on myself academically, I always wanted the best. I wanted to do the best that I possibly could. Same with sport, same with drama, same with being involved in as many things as I possibly could. So the extra pressure that was then placed on me on top of that um, I, you know, it took it to that next level for me. And again, that's just a personal thing, you know. Um, and but so, how
0: did you be able to
1: do all of that as well as not have enough nutrition? And this is the interesting thing so because in I look back on it too, and I, I am almost sort of fascinated by that. But I think what happens is you go into it, what I term a euphoric state. Oh, so it's this
0: because you feel so in control. Of
1: something. You're so in control. You don't, it was worse when I ate because when I ate, it was like, oh, I have to think about this and I have to calculate it. And if I was just purely restricting, then I just had this focus, this razor sharp focus, and I could just do what I needed to do. And, you know, I could absolutely hone in on exactly what it was that I needed to study for or the essay that I needed to do or the sports game that was coming up. It was just. It was just something that happened for me. It was, it, yeah, as I say, it was euphoric, and in terms of um, exercise, that was the case as well. Um,
0: that's so fascinating. It, so that's an is. addiction.
1: Absolutely, an addiction. That's what they
0: refer to when they, someone's taking, like, uh, cocaine or heroin or something like that, or smoking or alcohol. Whatever there are it is. so many get parallels. That really big euphoric thing that they and they keep doing it because that euphoria is something that they want.
1: Absolutely. There and are I've never so heard many parallels. someone
0: say it like that for an eating disorder before.
1: That's how it felt. That is exactly how it felt. It was this elevated state and it was great. So and I made you feel powerful.
0: Yeah. That's what they describe um, for kids, uh, other people on ice it makes them really powerful, feeling yeah. powerful.
1: I felt I felt like I was in control and I felt like things were great and you know I remember being just And dist-
0: did you have people telling you it wasn't great around you or not? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Not only professionals, but, but family they and didn't friends
0: because I had never done it.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Of course I knew there was a problem. But it was in control. I was in control. Whereas really my eating disorder was in control. And I think this is some credible sort of thing that I often talk to clients about because they're worried about giving up their eating disorder and they're gonna lose control. They're gonna lose all control. And that way I would say to them, hey, 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 what do you mean you're gonna lose control? The eating disorder is going to lose control and you are going to reclaim control. And there's this beautiful analogy of, you know, your eating disorder being in that driver's seat and you being in the locked boot of that car. And then bit by bit, you getting into the passenger seat and then you coming in and you taking that wheel from that eating disorder and you being in that driver's seat. Because ultimately recovery is about reclaiming your life and and reclaiming the control that you have over it. And, you know, it's it's a really, really hard thing to do.
0: Everything you're describing to me, because, you know, my background is addiction Mm. neuroscientist, is there's no difference.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's just that there's no drugs involved. This is the thing, and this is why we also see so many comorbidities happening with eating disorders.
0: So many People... mental
1: health comorbidities.
0: Absolutely. And do you mind describing what you know about those? Absolutely. So what we see is... Uh, can I just step in and say, Millie's got a lot of experience now. She's fully recovered and she's had a lived experience, but now she's helping lots and lots of people that are struggling through being the recovery coach for ended we'll go into that a bit later but absolutely because of your experience and all your knowledge now um i think it'd be nice to share with the audience some of those amazing things that you've learned
1: absolutely um so terms, it's not just
0: about the food that's what we're saying
1: no exactly um so In terms of comorbidities, what we see is often there is um, comorbidity with with alcoholism um, or with drugs or with borderline personality disorder or bipolar. Um, And and there are a myriad of others. um, But it's often that the person, for example, if they're in a situation where, for someone with bulimia, they're unable to binge and purge, then they may switch to something like alcohol. Um, again, it is something that serves a bit and of a then numbing. They, switch
0: back too?
1: they can switch back and, and forth. Do them together?
0: They, yeah, that absolutely. Really match up though. I mean, I um, guess you would. You can purge from drinking too much.
1: Look, definitely, I've had um, you know clients who who um, say double in alcohol and bulimia, and they will be binging and purging, and they will also be drinking. Um, I think it depends where that person is in their journey, um, and what their mental, you know, their mental stability is at that stage. Sometimes it might just be, no, I'm just doing alcohol. Sometimes it's just the binging and purging. Again, it's what environment they're in, what they can get away with. Um, and I think what is really, really important is that the person is treated as a whole. So, their um, personality um, disorders as well as their alcohol as well as their drugs and their eating disorder it all needs to be treated we can't just treat one aspect we need to treat that person and, and look at all the different um, it's a bit like an octopus with tentacles really I mean, there's all these different aspects and we really really have to be mindful of the fact that they are all interlinked that they're all feeding one another in some way and it's about supporting that person to be able to Really dig down deep, and at the end of the day, it comes down to addressing those core core issues. You know, a lot of time um, we talk about the fruit of someone's problem. So if you think about the tree a tree and it's got all this beautiful fruit, and often we sit in psychology sessions and we talk about things that really aren't the core issues and we're making jam and chutney with that fruit and we need to go down that trunk and we need to get into those roots into that core and it's hard and it's confronting and we will shy away from those issues when I started to see I'm sure we'll go back to my story at some stage mm-hmm. but I feel like we've jumped a whole big mm-hmm. chunk but um when I started to see my neurolinguistic linguistic programming um, specialist the things that she confronted me on in terms of the beliefs and values that I had to let go, I was not happy about it. I stormed out of that office. I just was not okay with letting those things go in the beginning. My eating disorder put up a big fight. And
0: You're it... talking about being able to achieve all those things you achieve because you could be so hyper-focused on being this type A person.
1: And um, having to
0: let that go. Is um. That
1: no, I was more meaning. So there were definite um beliefs and values that really um because I mean those characteristics of mine. Uh, actually really can be really positive if used in the right way right so I didn't have to let go of those I had to learn how to harness them for my own good I had to learn how to harness my determination and my drive While and my fictionism towards yeah but I had to and, and learn how to harness it towards recovery mm. you know and so I did that but in terms of what I was letting go of it was more around I had always said to myself that I'll recover, but I want to look a certain way. And so it was like recovery with conditions and that just just does, does not work. And when I was being challenged on that, that was like, absolutely F off. I do not want to know you anymore. If that's what I'm going to have to let go of, I will not you know, stand for it. And, you know, that's it ha- what drove it in the first place. Exactly. It. I needed to have control over what I was going to look like on the other end of recovery. And that's not possible if you want full recovery. And so I remember sitting with my mum on the beach, probably a couple of days after that session that I'd stormed out of, and saying to her, Mum, maybe she's right. Maybe, maybe I need to give that a go. And it's like, look, you know, look at yourself. 15 years later, nothing's changed. Yeah, maybe you do need to let go of things. So it was things like that, things like, You know, the fact that I'd always worried about what other people thought of me. And, you know, my therapist said to me, you know, you don't ever know what other people think of you. and they're mainly
0: thinking about themselves.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And I kept saying, well, I do. And she said, how do you know? Well, they might tell me. And she said, how do you know they're not lying to you when they tell you? And it was like this moment of, oh, my goodness. So I'm spending all this time and energy worrying about what other people think of me, yet they're probably not even thinking about me. Um, and so, yeah, you know, so things like that that really, yeah, you know. It's a shocking
0: realization, isn't it? When you realize people are mainly thinking about themselves.
1: Well, it's very, very, for me, it was very, very freeing. Yes. You know, it was this moment of. Oh. But, but most people are worried about what other people think about them. Absolutely. But I think when you come to a place of realizing that what matters most is what you think about yourself. Because you have to take
0: yourself with you for your whole life.
1: Absolutely. And that's what matters most is how do you think about yourself? And because that then directs how you care for yourself, how you carry yourself, how you project yourself to the world, how you treat other people. And that comes from doing that core, core inner self worth work where you know yourself and you know your purpose in this world and you feel comfortable in your own skin and you don't feel the need to prove yourself or compete. Um, And I think, yeah, I think that's probably one of the most, for me, really beautiful things about recovery is for people who haven't gone through something quite as as life-threatening. It's you are able to really really know yourself more than most people will ever get to know themselves you know yourself inside out you know your flaws you know what you have to be mindful of and i think that's a real real So
0: can gift. i just ask you um when we did the podcast with laura she, and a lot of people mentioned it's insane for addiction. There's a rock bottom sometimes. Absolutely. Did you actually have a rock bottom? You're I certainly describing. did. You I did. certainly
1: did. So if we kind of go back to where yeah. I was, my story. So anyway, high school, yeah. um, got to the end of high school, went on a Global Young Leaders Conference uh, in Washington, D.C., in New York, and that was... Um, when my eating disorder really did firmly take a grip, um, more on me and I lost a significant amount of weight, never really regained that weight because I was an adult. So no one could force me to, um, went to university, passed with fine colors, all of that jazz. Um, but little by little, just slowly sort of chipping away at losing more weight, um, and maintaining, you know, So
0: you were anorexics?
1: Then? Absolutely. I've, I've only ever um, struggled with anorexia.
0: So you were under, what, what was your lowest weight?
1: I definitely won't talk about weight numbers because what we know is that eating disorders um, are highly competitive. Oh, and so for anyone to talk really? about amounts of calories or to talk about weights is just highly triggering because what people oh. think is she got to that weight, so I'm not bad enough, I'm not a good enough that's um so, that's such good information. And I also think because So this
0: is what we're about too, is we're trying to provide more information to people because people that don't see it, never struggle with it. You know, these that's why I asked you about certain things. Because I think that's what we're about to, is spreading and widening the information.
1: Absolutely. So that
0: people understand all of this information you have as an expert now that Absolutely. we don't have. You yeah. see, things like that really matter, what you just said then, because I had no idea.
1: Totally. You see
0: what I'm saying? And so yes. if we can keep having... That's what I love about these conversations.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, you're very right. There are a lot of myths and stigmas still surrounding eating disorders. And a lot of it too is that it's this predominant discourse around, you know, when we see a media representation of, of, of an eating disorder, it is generally a white female with anorexia and very underweight. And, you know, 70%, 75% of my clients, um, you know, don't, it wouldn't battle with traditional anorexia in terms of looking underweight. And that's why I always say that eating disorders don't have a look. You know, eating disorders are complex, biopsychosocial illnesses, and it's, we, we have to, we really have to get that message out yeah. there. well, thank you but, for that. Yeah, so in terms of um, being... So, it's a, it's so my,
0: you're almost saying... Sorry, Tindra. Hmm. You're saying we focus on that because it's about eating, but what you're saying is it's really about what's going on in someone's mind. It's like a mental health, absolutely disorder. Absol- absolutely, and sometimes it doesn't present itself by first pass looking at somebody. Absolutely, but only if it does, that's kind of very extreme. Yeah, as well. Someone can be, you know, really ill, and it's just really, really obvious.
1: Absolutely. But by the same token, someone can be really, really ill with an eating disorder and not look severely underweight as well. It all depends yeah. so on the individual's the journey. Piece. Absolutely. And that's important for society as a whole, important but inside, for clinicians. You're
0: saying that they've got some health issues going on though.
1: Absolutely. Or you know, or mentally as well. It doesn't just have to be, you know, a physical manifestation yeah, yeah. of it. Um, you know, people can have restored weight but not have not have been um, given the support to deal with the underlying psychological issues and, and as we know then that just means they still have the mind um, o- o- of an eating disorder so um, for That's me right. I so basically I was working yeah. um, all that sort of thing and then um, I was being seen as an outpatient um,
0: for How the old region- are you now?
1: Yeah. Um, this would have been about mid20s yeah. um, so I was being seen as an outpatient for the regional eating disorders service in Auckland and I will Always remember the day. Did you put
0: yourself in there
1: then? Um, so it was really what you had to do, I guess. I could have, guess I could have refused it, but it was the public health system. That's what you did. You saw them as an, an outpatient. You saw a psychologist once a week. You saw a dietitian, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and they pulled my parents and, and I into a room and had this meeting and basically said... My eating disorder was too severe and enduring, um, that I would not recover, and that palliative care really needed to be looked at as, as the next option. And for me, that was this moment of thinking, well, they're the experts, and they've just said that I don't have any hope, and it was a real feeling of that hope being ripped away from me, and so of course, I discharged myself from those services. I didn't want to work with people who didn't believe that I could get well. And that really then set the trajectory for me going even further into the depths of my eating disorder. It was a living hell. Um, every I hardly slept because I was so hungry and every minute of the day I was, you know, exercising obsessively um, I went through stages where I wouldn't sit down um, just really irrational absolutely eating disorder consumed behavior I had several stress fractures in my hips and I was running on those stress fractures bawling my eyes out behind my sunglasses I was in severe pain I was just so done like I I was just... It was every waking minute was spent thinking about food or calories or expenditure on my body or analysing things. And
0: it, so that almost sounds like a, your brain went into this obsessive compulsive situation. Absolutely.
1: I didn't think about anything else. Um, and, and then you would
0: have had your family trying to do stuff.
1: Absolutely. But I mean, the eating disorder absolutely shuts them out and does everything it can to, to keep on its path and its track where it wants to go. And so it got to a point where I walked into um, my family GP's office, who I've seen since I was a baby. And he basically said to me, you know, you've got about a week to live. Um, you need to decide whether you, you want to live or die. And, and I think it's really important at this point to explain that I've never been suicidal, never been depressed, never self-harmed. But for me, I'd gotten to this point where I could not face the thought of waking up to my reality. You know, what had become my reality, this all-consuming living hell. And I made that decision that I would, you know, I couldn't fathom the idea. I couldn't see how I'd ever be free other than looking down on the world from afar. You know, that was that was the way that I thought that I could be free and be at peace. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be at peace. I didn't want to be thinking like this. I did not want to be in pain. I did not want to be so freezing cold all the time and blue. And um, so I made that decision and I, I went home to tell my mom and um, obviously she was sort of trying her best to come to grips with that that idea. Um, and she was coming to Noosa to go house sitting and she said, well, I'd like you to come with me. And the time I sort of thought that was a bit silly because what a waste of an airfare, like I've decided I'm going to die anyway. And it was um, she found a woman who deals with neurolinguistic programming and hypnotherapy here on the coast, and you know, she said Carmen, and, and we'll give her a go. And and to be honest, I really did it for Mum. You know, I thought, okay, I'll give, I'll give it a go. It was almost like I'll humour her because they've told me I'm not gonna they've told me I'm not gonna survive. They've told me I'll never get well. So, but anyway, I you know I did it. I was I was I was so exhausted that I was like, okay, yes. Okay, let's do this. And so we went to Nusa, and I vividly remember my first session um, with this therapist. And I just came out of it and I said, "Mum, that was, you know, a waste of money because I did not take in anything that she said. I was just thinking about the size of my thighs and the fact that I would rather be out for a run." And she said to me, well, "Will you give it one more go? Will you go in there and, and tell her?" that was how you, you know, your experience. So I went in the next time and I said, look, it's not you, it's me. I'm I'm too unwell. You can't help me. Um, You know, thank you, but (laughs) see you later. And she said to me, why do you think that? And I said, well, because all I was thinking was, you know, about my thighs and everything. And she said, yeah, and you were also thinking. And she reeled off all these thoughts that I probably never told anyone in terms of, you know, what the rhetoric is in my head with the anorexia. And I just sat there and I thought, shh. She can see what's going on in my brain. I, I need to give this a go. And it was from that moment on where I was in, boots and all, I decided consciously that I was going to take that leap of faith. And it was really that moment of I either do this and I give it my all or I'm going to die. So for me, I didn't want to die not knowing what it was like to truly live. You know, I had got mating disorder when I was a child. I didn't know what it was like to live as an independent adult, have a full life, have loving relationships. Um, all of those things. And so I felt like I owed it to myself to really, really dive it, dive deep and, and give it my all. And it was the most confronting, excruciatingly difficult experience of my life. There were tantrums. It's literally like you're a toddler. You throw your toys out of the cot a million times over. Um, and it really, really pushed me to my absolute limits, but it was also the most rewarding and life saving you know experience Look how beautiful and, you are. oh thank you yes, and so healthy well it really it, it it for me it was about knowing that I could change my brain everybody had said everybody over the years had said now this is something that you'll have to control for the rest of your life and you know this is something you just have to keep at bay and when this therapist said to me she said well you can change your brain and I said well no everybody she said you can change your brain. Do you want to change your brain? Said, well, of course I do. I said, you can change your brain. And it was just this moment of someone simply telling me that I had the power to do that and being able to change my neural pathways from having this eating disorder super highway with all these flashing lights. It was just, that's how I describe it. It's just so easy to get onto that highway and that freeway and everything just flows. And, you know, dealing with with your neural pathways and creating new ones is like almost carving out like a goat track on the side of the motorway and you, it's really craggy and someone wants has sort of bushwhacked its way through it, but you've got to go again and again on that track to create that as a super highway, your super highway of health and happiness. And, you know, connectedness with your soul and it's it is really hard and there's always that option to get on that eating disorder superhighway kind of pulling you go oh, well you could get so much easier you could be so much quicker to your destination but it's about really going in that direction where it is harder but where you learn about yourself and you create a new life for yourself and you come out of that process connected as a whole person mind body and soul so can i ask you Millie
0: um this is really important Um, point and it's a first of all congratulations on what you've done it's absolutely amazing because no one believes that they can do that but then to see the product which is you from that hard work and taking that journey what I want to do with you is this is where we call it um connecting like how do we help people take that first step like if they're listening to what you've just said. And, I mean, it doesn't get much worse than what you just described happened to you, right? Absolutely. And you had a beautiful mother and you got this opportunity and it could be the universe lining things up. But what is that? Like, like, let's pretend that there's people out there listening to you and that NLP person said something to you that,
1: click something in your head you then realize what it is that you truly value and what you want your life to look like what you want your life to be founded on and it it enables you to realize that you are not your eating disorder because I think sometimes when we're so consumed we've been consumed for so many years you know for me I was sick for 15 very long years and so I I really did feel that my eating disorder and myself were one in the same. And so it was a process of me realizing and uncovering that Millie inside of me, that Millie that valued connection and valued authenticity and loved nature and all of these different things that made me who I was without my eating disorder. And I think that that is, is a really, really key part of recovery because it helps you to discover what it is that you really want your life to be about. And I think for me, knowing that I had a greater purpose than restricting my food and exercising obsessively was huge. I remember when I finished with doing my NLP and I was well, and I went back to Auckland, I very, very quickly realized that that was not a place that I wanted to be to be in long-term. It, it really wasn't the environment that I felt was going to continue to foster uh, the new the new Millie. And so I actually went to... So you're to
0: creating Millie
1: 2.0? Millie 2.0. I mean, very much I'm still myself. I'm still that little girl... Um, you know that I was all those years ago but it was about reinventing myself in a way definitely and well almost coming home to myself it's it's, it it is a beautiful kind of terminology to use where recovery is involved because it is you are coming home to yourself so can we talk about um, the first day you didn't
0: restrict your eating is it like to be, that? It's not it, really
1: like that, to be honest, Selena. Yeah. It is more of a gradual... So um, that's the
0: piece I want to talk about, because really the difficulty is the first 7 to 21 days when you're making these changes. Yes. To stay on the pathway, because I know you'll still be doing things the way you would normally do it, but there must have been small things you were doing differently, because there has to be to make to make a change that was coming. So that's the bit I'm kind of interested in because those first 21 days are really the hardest.
1: Absolutely. Um, I would definitely say that it extended beyond 21 days Mm -hmm. as well. Oh, it does. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's for your whole life. And, and it definitely, it definitely ebbs and flows in terms of the difficulty, um, of it. And it definitely depends also on, on your moods and things like that. And, um, also, for me, it depended on on what sort of things were being challenged in therapy, and and so there's it's, it's it is an emotional roller coaster. Um, I think, you know, it was quite sporadic in so terms it of how. So, sounds like what
0: you're saying is it's it was the way you were changing your mind first. It absolutely before, was. Before that piece was coming before changing all of your habits around
1: all these other things. Absolutely shifting those those neural pathways and shifting those beliefs and allowing me to just kind of loosen my grip on on that reality and what I had you know believed in um, allowed me to then what my mum and I termed as me becoming softer so not only was it becoming softer in the way that I viewed the world not only was it becoming softer in my body and less angular but I was just becoming softer with myself. I wasn't so hard and fast. It wasn't so black and white. Eating disorders are incredibly black and white. You know they don't like grey. And so I was just becoming softer with 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 the whole process. And so that then allowed me to be less rigid and less. Um, almost polarizing with with my food and and allowing myself to gently go well maybe I could try that and maybe I could have that and speaking up for myself and taking ownership of things like that Um, and then so it's this preparing your mind
0: piece it sounds like you spent quite some time doing that
1: absolutely absolutely and then you know what I was talking about before too was that that key component is also finding your purpose, and I think often when you come out of an eating disorder, it's really hard because you don't you don't know like it, it, and it can be really really scary. It's like what am I going to be without my eating disorder? And people have this fear. And when I'm working with clients, I talk about it. Okay, you could look at it like that, and you could look at it as something really scary, or you could look at it as an incredible opportunity to reinvent yourself. And I give them this visualization of a blank canvas, and they can splash brightly colored paint all over that canvas and make it into whatever they want it to be. And there's there's an opportunity there. And you know, for me, that's when I went back to Auckland, and I just realized, you know what? I, I need to I need to discover what it is for me. What is going to be my next step? What is going to be my purpose? And I went to uh, Los Angeles for a little while and just spent some time there really trying to sort of find myself and what it was that I did want to do and also really enjoying. So you enjoy. went to
0: LA, did you say? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I really love LA. Um, it's it, I've got a lot of friends over there. Um, people, people often sort of say to me, you went to LA to find yourself. But for me, it's got a really special place in my heart. Um, there were a few sort of pivotal moments in my recovery that happened there in terms of, well, probably I would say my eating disorder journey that happened there, realizations, moments, that sort of thing. It was a very full circle thing for me to go back to LA. Um, and I just spent time really enjoying living, living as someone without an eating disorder, just doing normal things, going to cafes, having a cupcake, not thinking about it. It's almost like a radical
0: change in your environment too, right? Absolutely. Because your environment stimulates that triggers the brain to do what it's used to doing absolutely it makes it hard to fight that in the beginning stages yes
1: and I had this moment um while I was there I was in a park and I was journaling and there was a lady pushing her daughter on a swing and she would have been about six or seven and she said to to this young girl she said I won't be able to to swing you anymore soon because you're getting too fat and I had this real visceral reaction in the pit of my stomach to, to what she had said. And I just thought about the course of events that that could trigger off for this young girl and this you know possible lifetime of body loathing or eating disorders or whatever it is. And um, people have been saying to me that I should write about my experience. And up until this point, I thought, you know, there are a million eating disorder recovery books out there and I didn't feel like I had something unique to offer. So. I hadn't really written and I didn't mean that I went off and wrote a book but what it did mean is that I wrote about my experience and I posted it on Facebook. I wanted people to know what it's like to have an eating disorder and how dangerous it is and how we've got to be careful around our language and I posted it on Facebook and it just resonated with so many people and people liking it and liking it and commenting and sharing and then Huffington Post picked it up and it was at that moment that I realized I do have something of value here to offer and I just found the fact that my lived experience resonated with people so deeply I just knew from that point on I was like you know what I want to do something with this and that was that moment where I decided I want to move to my happy place the Sunshine Coast and I also I wanted to start an eating disorders charity and when I arrived on the Sunshine Coast I was very quickly introduced through a mutual friend to Mark and Gay and I just connected with them immediately and their mission and their vision and, and everything and and as parents and carers of, of individuals with eating disorders you know they had started to support parents and I said well I really love I said to Mark I'd really love to support sufferers and it grew from there and so that was incredible. It was like the universe aligning, and I just thought I, I want to be involved with them. And, and you know, we're so aligned in our values, and it's incredible because it enables us to achieve such great things as a collective with lived experience from both sides of, of having that parents and carers and and the sufferers perspective. And I think you know, it's been incredible to watch that dream of ours come to fruition with establishing australia's first residential eating disorders facility um, i went to the states last year uh, looking at all the different residentials over there and these world-class facilities and taking note of everything from ceiling heights to how they run their groups to staffing to all sorts of different things how the rooms are laid out and came back and we sat with our, our teams here and designers and talked about it and, and created what is going to become well what is becoming currently in dead butterfly house and To see something like that come come to fruition and come from such heartache and pain, um, you know that from the entire ended group, from parents and carers, sufferers, it's incredible and it's really really exciting. And I think, you know, I what I say to people is, I feel really really lucky to have found my purpose. Like I deeply deeply feel that this is what I will be doing for the rest of my life in some capacity because I feel that sharing our stories, I feel that dispelling the myths and stigma i went down to parliament last year and talked about myths and stigmas surrounding eating disorders doing things like that doing podcasts like this letting people understand or gain some sort of understanding of what an eating disorder what it's like to live with an eating disorder well and i don't how...
0: think people understand that it's an addiction
1: Exactly, well, it's very partly. much still out there. It's just you know, disease and reserved for superficial people who've got nothing better to do and than worry about what they look. Yeah, and also like. I
0: think um, I don't want to take you off track because you're on a good story hmm. about LA and getting with gay Mark. Let's finish there, and I'll, We'll go back to the underlying causes.
1: Okay, so in terms of the residential, so I just talk a, a briefly about that as well. So we have a beautiful property, um, twenty-five acre property in Malibu Valley. And that is where we're building Australia's First Residential. And it's very much um, specialised, obviously, for eating disorders. And it is a very holistic approach. And it is based on the Eight Keys model. So the incredible Carolyn Coston, who I've trained under to become an eating disorder recovery coach, she had the highly successful Montanito clinics in the States. And she we're using the Eight Keys to Recovery model um, to form a foundation for, for, for how the the facility is going to run and is very much um, along the lines of the fact that everybody enters treatment with a healthy self and an eating disorder self and the goal of recovery is to integrate those two selves and for that person to become one again and we deal with those underlying causes as well and really really helping people on a practical level rather than them being you know totally I guess helped to a point where it's sometimes almost disabling because if you're in hospital and you're just being constantly fed and you don't have, you're not touching the food, you're not portioning the food to then go out into the community, it's incredibly, incredibly traumatic because, well, you haven't had to cook for yourself, you don't know how to portion it and that sort of thing. So, um, there will be a level system where people on different levels are able to actually have privileges, privileges like that, so that they can learn, basically learn how to live again and learn how to live again in an environment where they are surrounded by compassionate, caring staff that are specialised in this area.
0: Yeah. And it's still invoking the medical model too. You're not separating it from the medical model. Absolutely. It's all integrated. Absolutely, it's like you're, Everything's you're taking everything integrated. across the spectrum Absolutely. to tailor it to an individual.
1: Absolutely. So it's not like
0: you're choosing to go against anything
1: exactly and an existing um, their existing multidisciplinary treatment team will and also be involved and we need all families that involved it's so that whole thing involved we can't just be an isolated standalone Everything has to be involved and then obviously EndEd will remain absolutely as it is now, running groups and having the recovery coaching and all of that. So there'll be this wonderful um, follow through with with community support. Because that matters so much. It is absolutely crucial.
0: but you definitely need the acute care in the acute phases, as you've said. Absolutely. You you absolutely need that medical facility. No doubt everything has its place. But for us to get the long term you need all of
1: these things interwoven into a tapestry for recovery. A big tapestry and I think the key thing is that that Everybody involved in that tapestry communicates and everybody involved respects that person's value and role in it. No one's above anyone else. Everybody has their own part to play and it's equally as important because it's addressing a different side of the eating disorder or or part of the family dynamic or whatever it is. and and I think that's that's essential because I think that open communication between everyone then allows that individual to have the best wraparound care and support because what we know is that eating disorders manipulate and split teams and all of that kind of thing and so they can be saying one thing to the psychologist one thing to the recovery coach and one thing to the dietitian all quite different and stories being spun this happens addiction too Absolutely The
0: lying is unbelievable Absolutely But it's not it's, it's to get what you want, right? It's a deception thing Of course so it is can we just talk quickly about this cause? I think this is so important I think this is the future Sure And that is underlying And this has been a big learning for me too Because I'm not an expert in eating disorders But what I've discovered And we had this big conversation before we started the podcast Is that underlying it is severe trauma and stress that's underlying people's eating disorders. So there's these comorbid mental health issues too that are never really talked about. We, when we're talking about eating disorders, we're always focusing on the eating disorder. And that happens with addiction. We focus on the alcohol. <laughs> we focus on the drug. But underneath that is, is a lot of trauma and um, other causes. And unless, And as you mentioned, if you start to bring back the food or you start to reduce the alcohol then all of that stuff comes back up and you need something to counteract or to replace the thing that was helping to solve those problems, right? And this has been your experience too, out in the real world, working with real people, right? There's this underlying multi-pronged issues and eating disorder is just really a medication. Absolutely, yeah. And we just don't ever think of it like that. Yeah, I mean... Which is why it's so complex that you have to have a lot of players working together.
1: You do. You absolutely do. Because So what we know is that eating disorders are constantly morphing and changing. So you might be working on one aspect of it and really be nailing that aspect, and then it morphs and changes, and all of a sudden you've got it hitting you from another angle. And that is is one of the real challenges of dealing with eating disorders is, yes, they are so individualised, but they're also really, really tricky to navigate because one day they're attacking someone from this angle, the next day they're attacking from another. And it really does take a team, a team approach. Is that like
0: a food attack? Like they'll be changing what they do with food or exercise? It could
1: be, it could be a number of things. It could be what you know, it could be what they're talking to them about how their body looks. It could be in regards to food. It could be in regards to exercise. It could be in regards to what people are saying about them. It could be at so many different angles, and, and that I think can change is what that, you're saying. That can change too, and I think that that's you know really really important to understand is these underlying causes and factors that. Cause an an eating disorder. It is so much more than just about having an issue with food. That is how it manifests, absolutely. But you know, my clients all have different journeys, and they've all had different experiences that lead them to be experiencing an eating disorder at the moment. Whether that experience is is sexual trauma, whether it is is family trauma, whether it's post traumatic stress. There are so many different different ways. Um, that and in your experience,
0: um, how many people have you noticed? Also, it's in the family too. There's some family history of eating disorders too.
1: That is that is that is common. Definitely, um, I wouldn't be able to put a figure to it, but it definitely is common. Um, definitely, even if that family has not had someone with a diagnosed eating disorder in it, Um, family members with, with issues around food. And often I will have people asking me, like, how can we prevent, You know, how can we make our home environment the best that we possibly can to prevent our young ones from getting an eating disorder? And something that I always say is that it's really, really important to remember that There is no such thing as good or bad food, that food does not have a moral value. You know, in our obesogenic culture where there's such a focus on healthy eating, we really do label foods as good or bad, and sugar's bad, and this is, it's like, at the core of it all, food does not have a moral value and you're not inherently good or bad for consuming that food. Because what you need to understand that is if you tell someone who is predisposed to an eating disorder that sugar is bad, that may mean that they get to a point where they won't even consume fruit because fruit has sugar in it. And things like how, how you talk about your body, how you talk about other people's bodies. And you know, young people pick up on that. Or you don't even have to be a young person to pick up on it. If you're around groups of friends that judge people who are walking down the street or talk about their bodies in a negative way, then you start to feel that somehow your body might be inadequate too. And so it's about being really mindful of how we talk about and how we treat food, body, exercise in a whole number of ways. Because it and this can... also
0: comes down to gender differences too, how women think men want women to look a certain way too
1: look I think definitely there is
0: definitely that component to it
1: yeah and I think and the modeling the models on the yeah and again it comes down to an individual experience so for some people that may not play into it at all for some people models on a catwalk they might be completely indifferent to it or completely indifferent to what um, you know, depending on their sexual orientation, of course, what a male or a female's yeah, but the um, Instagram
0: idea... pictures of young girls now. Oh, uh, absolutely! You know, I mean, that's
1: it, huge. It, it is huge. It is absolutely huge. And, you and
0: betraying yourself because you can adjust everything.
1: Absolutely, and you know what I say to people is that what you are seeing online is not reality. And um, often, what I do with my clients is a social media cleanse and get them to go through and unfollow any accounts that they are judging themselves again, that against or that they somehow, you know, feel inadequate when they, when they look at them and well, you know it, really inter- that's follow. a really cr-
0: great piece of advice absolutely
1: and i have a recommended you know list of instagram accounts to follow that are body positive and that are really really full of inspiration and really good content that really makes you want to be moving more, more towards your healthy self rather than your eating disorder self because you know i always talk about the fact that when i was 12 instagram facebook didn't exist or maybe if it did exist but it was very you know that really early stages of it so we we didn't we didn't have it we didn't have smartphones we had the nokia 2010 or whatever it was and i had to actually go to the news agent and actually look at magazines to compare myself whereas now it's just in the palm of your hand i don't know that i would have survived in this instagram culture because it is just so so insidious the other day um, i was in auckland
0: and I was talking to a beauty therapist, and you know what the latest thing is? That people get butt fillers. Yeah. And lip fillers. Mm-hmm. So they're putting silicon... Oh, no, they're taking fat from parts of their body and putting it here. Yeah. So they can look like a certain way from, like, an Instagram look.
1: Absolutely. And that manipulation of, of our bodies to, to suit a certain image that is prized by society... As being the ideal image just for now now though right exactly and And next year will be a different one who has any right to tell anyone how they should look and what the right look is and if we look back through the ages so to speak and we look at how that has shifted and changed as to what is prized it's like let's just allow ourselves to be who we are and be grateful and embrace the bodies that we do have because they're incredible just incredible i want to say works of art but they're also some su-
0: i mean they're just incredible we're so lucky to be alive
1: well we are and i think that gratitude is something that i often use with my clients too in terms of be grateful for the fact that your body has carried you this far through your life and it has weathered all the storms that it's had to weather yeah, and it's still here yeah the yeah. chances
0: of us being alive
1: are so slim this and is life is so short exactly exactly and it's about really reminding yourself of that when the eating disorder does a really good job of sleeping that under the carpet and making you not focus on that when that is something that needs to always be and in front would, of your i mind. would say
0: that it's not just people with eating disorders i'd say it's people in a lot of people
1: absolutely you don't have to have, have, have an eating, eating disorder.
0: disorder they'll be but they'll still be focusing on all the bad things going on in their life Absolutely, And then life's over before you know it or you might get something that could make you ill. And,
1: Absolutely. You know. And I think something really powerful that I do a lot personally and also try and help my clients to, to instigate it in their own lives is reframing. So when you say something as in, well, oh, I'm failing at this. It's like, no, you're not failing. No, you're trying at this. You are trying this and you are learning from your experiences and this really small, simple shift like that can be incredibly powerful because our self talk is so, so, so important and yeah. more powerful than we realize. Yeah. So, oh, if we can so be powerful. conscious of reframing things, and another thing that I often say to clients is that it's about conscious, consistent commitment every single day to recovery so today that conscious consistent commitment might be around reframing your negative thoughts tomorrow it might be around challenging yourself around foods that you're afraid of the next day it might be about removing yourself from from toxic friendship circles whatever it is but it's that conscious consistent commitment to moving away from your eating disorder self and strengthening that healthy self so that you can reclaim your life
0: well i have to tell you just a quick story um I did the Nusa triathlon yes five years ago and i trained for one year and i did that triathlon and i was totally focused on doing well in that triathlon i didn't spend any time thinking about how fantastic it was swimming in the channel looking at nature on the bike and then doing the run and listen and looking at all the wonderful people supporting you right so i did a pretty okay time right in 2014 Um, I just did the Noosa Triathlon, right, 2019. I haven't been on my bike only twice in four years. I have never done an ocean swim. But this was far, far better, wonderful triathlon in my whole life. And the whole time since that five years has passed because of all the way I've changed the way I think, the whole time during that, I kept saying to myself how lucky I was to be here, to be able to do this swim. And it felt like I was a dolphin in the ocean, even though it can be really scary out there, I've never done it before. On my bike ride, I haven't, I didn't train at all, right? On the bike ride, I'll never be able to do this again, on that bike ride. And then on the run, you know, I was th- and I was just thinking what a huge shift. In, and so you see the huge shift in thinking and I'm okay. And my time was only not, it was a bit, I wasn't doing it for the time, but I'm just saying my time shifted, but the whole experience was like so significantly different, even though the previous one I had trained for a year for it. Yeah. So I was just thinking what a huge difference, just the way you're framing everything, the story you're creating in your head, how freaking powerful that really is. It's so powerful you don't even realize that you don't have that story in your head
1: absolutely absolutely and I think and what it's creating I mean totally and I think often people can be told things like you'll have to deal with the even sort of for the rest of your life or really now it's too severe like I was told it's too severe and enduring you know there really isn't any hope and I think what's really really important is when you don't feel that there's hope for yourself that you look to other people in your life that are holding that hope for you holding that hope that you can do this and that you can fully recover and draw strength from them so if you're not in a position where you feel like you can really summon up that positive reframing and that hope and look to other people in your life that believe because they and don't tell me that there's not someone that believes because there will be there was always someone that believes in you and believes that you can fully recover yeah. and it's just sitting there waiting in the wings waiting for and that how, day
0: how does someone like this is why you do the coaching and everything um how can someone get in contact with
1: you where do they go absolutely so you can email me millie m-i-l-l-i-e at ndead.org.au e-n-d-e-d .au or you can I run the endead Instagram so at enDed Australia I update that daily with recovery inspiration. There's always our dead website um and I've also got my personal Instagram early. Yes, there's Facebook at we're, we're at Facebook at ending eating disorders So multiple ways of getting in touch. Please don't hesitate to reach out. If you've got questions, um, concerns, anything like that, or just want to find out more about what we're doing, always happy to talk.
0: And we'll put all the links into the show notes so if people want to go and click to find you. Perfect. And um, so can you just describe quickly, because I know we've been going for a while, Mm. Um, some of the wonderful things that have happened in your life now that you've made that recovery, you, you, you've a long time recovered now. Yeah, so it's been share over four years some of the amazing now. things that have happened.
1: Gosh, for me, it's still I mean, a lot is... of things. Have happened, haven't they? <laughs> It I mean, is
0: seriously big things. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I think there have been some. There have been a lot of incredible moments, and I, I'm probably guilty of not taking enough time to, to reflect on them. I think when I recovered, I was just so determined to, to like make the most of every single minute of my life from here on in and so for me definitely moving to the Sunshine Coast was huge. Um, Living here makes me so, so happy. I love being by the ocean and being in permanent sunshine. Um, Meeting Mark and Gay was definitely um, one of the best moments of my life. Um, We connect on an incredible level and I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful to to have met them and to be on this journey um, together with NDEAD and I think moments like standing in parliament and talking about myths and stigma surrounding eating disorders, having the minister for health stand up and tell my story in parliament and at mental health conferences and him recognizing the value of lived experience. that That's huge for me. Um, being able to use what was such a painful part of my life to help others and to get emails from parents telling me that I've, you know, had a. I don't ever believe that I can single-handedly save someone's life, but it's wonderful to hear parents saying you know, we really believe that her contact, with her or his contact with you, was, was the the deciding factor in things. Um, seeing a woman who I have coached just flourishing and coming out the other side and going, I want to help too. That's incredibly, incredibly special, and I think. I feel privileged to to walk alongside these incredible, incredible human beings as they navigate what is one of the hardest parts um, of life and to be able to, to, to be a witness to their struggles and to help. And it takes a lot to let someone in, to trust someone. Um, and, and so that in itself is a really beautiful thing. I think I also just love the freedom that being recovered allows me. So I love being able to have an afternoon nap if I want to and not think anything about it, have whatever I want to eat and not feel guilty about it, not have to worry about it, not have to calculate. There's no calculation that goes on. And being free to just be me and not worrying what other people think and being able to embrace that. And I always remember the Dr. Seuss quote, those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. And it is so true. Let's just all be ourselves because we're all incredible, unique individuals who have something to offer this world. We're here for all these wonderful different reasons. And let's appreciate one another and just live and love and be our beautiful selves. And if we just do that, and we support one another and we lift one another up and we celebrate one another's achievements rather than being competitive and tearing one another down. The world will be such a wonderful, wonderful place. I know. And you know what? I think that's
0: a fantastic way to end it. Perfect. It's been so wonderful to talk to you today, Selena. i yeah, loved it. And Millie, thank you for everything you do.
1: Oh, it's it's my really pleasure.
0: fantastic because we really need you. And people are really suffering, and I know that, and you know that. and we need to do it differently, don't we? It's not working what we did, so let's make a change. We absolutely doesn't don't. mean we get rid of anything that worked, but we have to start introducing new thinking, new tools, new ways to combine it with some of the things that have worked over some
1: time. Absolutely, I I say we need a paradigm shift and you know what's exciting? Is that paradigm shift is actually happening. At our groundbreaking ceremony, I said, I feel like this is the start of a new chapter for eating disorder treatment in Australia and I firmly believe that we're well on the way to that and it's incredibly exciting to be a witness to it.
0: And thank you, Um, it's just amazing to see how something can be done so quickly when you have purpose and intent. Absolutely. That was from zero to to a building currently going up in
1: four years. It's been an incredible, incredible process, and it is an absolute testament to to not only the Indead collective, but also to the Sunshine Coast community, to the federal government. You know, we've had an incredible support from our federal member Andrew Wallace, who enabled us to get and um, for Mark to go down and get in front of Greg Hunt and. Greg Hunt has really, really championed this and, and taken it taken it on board. And then just the community spirit around it, the people that have said, we'll do the roofing for free, we'll do the garden, we'll do this, we'll do that. It is an absolute community effort. And I actually don't know that it would have gotten off the ground as it has anywhere other than the Sunshine Coast, because this is such a special region.
0: It is. Uh, the people here are fantastic So thank you very much for joining us today and helping spread the word and educate people and give a few tips and tricks and um, let's hope that this gets to more and more people and, and people get a better, more fundamental understanding about what's really going on and let's work towards making that a better solution by understanding both sides of the equation absolutely so thank you for listening everyone we hope you benefited from that and we look forward to the next episode thank you bye